Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello once again, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast. I am your illustrious host, and I use that term loosely, the illustrious part, not the host part, Luke Giaconetti, and I'd like to welcome you to the show once again. I hope everyone enjoyed last episode where we talked about Godzilla Monster of Monsters for the NES. Oh boy, that brought back a lot of memories for some folks, I imagine. Certainly brought back some memories for me of just very slowly creeping across hex fields fighting monsters in uh, on plain black backgrounds. <laughs> um, over on our forum, uh, which is the Two True Freaks forum, which you can find at www.forumforgeeks, uh, Chris Honeywell posted a long play video of the game, and it's like three hours long. And... Um, that that game that video perfectly illustrates the monotony of this game, and uh, also illustrates why the game is best played in short doses and uh, come back to with uh, passwords or save states or what have you. But today we are going to be talking about some comics. I have uh, all five issues of IDW Comics Godzilla Legends miniseries. And we're going to be talking about those um, once we get into the show here. So we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back to talk about some Godzilla comics here on Earth Destruction Directive. Earth Destruction Directive, where we maintain that all defense spending should be funneled towards giant robot monsters. Okay, we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla Legends was the second miniseries published by IDW Comics after they received the Godzilla license from Toho. The first miniseries, of course, was Godzilla Gangsters and Goliaths, which we've talked about earlier on this uh, on this show. Godzilla Legends uh, was first published in... Uh, the cover date is November 2001 for issue number one, and uh, it stars Angurus, and the cover I have is by Art Adams, and it has Angurus snarling viciously at the uh, at the reader, and it says featuring Angurus. Uh, Godzilla Legends number one is entitled The Underdog. The writers are Matt Frank and Jeff Prezenkowski, penciler Jeff Prezenkowski, inker Jeff Prezenkowski. The colorist is Josh Perez, aka B. Uh, letter was Chris Mallory. Editor Bobby Kerno. And as I said, the cover artist was Art Adams. There was also variants by Bob Eggleton and Matt Frank. Our story opens, not with Angurus, but with Destoroya attacking a city. As he, uh, you see him, his horn uh, burning with energy as he smashes through a, uh, a cityscape. Uh, we cut to our three human stars. And uh, Dr. Anders is telling Colonel Matsumiya that they need to evacuate this facility now because their forces there are not handled to equip Destoroya. The colonel responds that... Uh, Doctor, this is a perfect time for Dr. Anders to test what he calls his dog whistle. Apparently, Dr. Anders had accidentally stumbled upon a frequency that summoned who they call Kaiju Alpha. It's very clearly Godzilla. And that he could use that it's the, 
he's been researching whether they can use this frequency to summon Godzilla to fight other monsters. Anders says that it's not ready, but Matsumiya insists, and so they activate it, and nothing happens. And so, as Destoroya rampages through the city some more, Anders tells Matsumiya that he told you it wouldn't work, but uh, it doesn't matter now, because Destoroya attacks the facility therein, collapsing the building on top of them. Um, Colonel Matsumiya is caught under some wreckage, and Dr. Anders, along with uh, his military escort, uh, Samantha Tagger, uh, they are ordered to evacuate, and even though Tagger tries to get Matsumiya out, she is unable to do so, and uh, so they uh, make a break for the roof where uh, they find a plane and get out of there. But while they're on the roof, uh, they hear another monster arrive, and um, Tagger says, is it Alpha? You know, is, is, did it work? Is Godzilla? And uh, Tagger says, no, I recognize that vocalization. It's Angerus, as Angerus pops out of the harbor, challenging Destoroya. First, Samantha is uh, emboldened by this. She says, oh, you know, your device works, and Angers, he can fight this thing, right? Well, then Anders gives her the bad news that Angerus has uh, basically lost every fight he's been involved in, and uh, that, he, you know, he's way outmatched by Destoroya. And so uh, we then see Angerus on all fours looking very, very small in front of a, a reared-back Destoroya. But Angerus is game and charges right at his bigger foe, only to get kicked in the jaw for his troubles. Uh, Destoroya loads up his uh, micro-oxygen beam and hits Angerus in the back with it as Anders and Tagger take to the air. And uh, Anders has a good liner. He says, Angerus is known for his unique brand of tenacity, always charging blindly into battle with much more powerful kaiju. It's moronic and this could be his last mistake. And it seems like he might be right, because Destoroya grabs Angerus around the throat with his uh, tail claw, and then drags him through the city. It's actually not too dissimilar to what he did to Godzilla in Godzilla vs. Destoroya. In their, uh, in their fighter jet, Tagger and Anders open, uh, open fire on the Destoroya, trying to help Angerus out. All they succeed in doing is turning his attention to them, and Destroya tries to hit them with their micro-oxygen beam. Ed Anders gets the idea that since extreme cold has had a detrimental effect on Destroya in the past, if they could lure it to the chemical plant where there's some large Freon tanks, they could explode the tanks and freeze Destroya. So they lure him towards it, but... Um, it doesn't end up working because Angurus keeps stirring and fighting him, and so Destroya keeps turning back to fight Angurus instead of uh, following them. So, as they lament that their plan won't work, they try to figure out what else they can do. Anders figures that he can create, uh, he can adjust his signal to be turned into a repelling signal and maybe drive Destroya away. So, he tells uh, Tagger to fly in as close as he can, and he activates the signal, and it goes off, and it seems to be working. It sends out this frequency that really tries to really messes up Destroya, but it only lasts for about a minute, and all they've done is piss off the giant red kaiju. And then uh, they, they're about to retreat because uh, Tagger says she can't stand to watch Angurus get finished off. They get a radio message from Matsumiya, who miraculously is alive, and he is flying a transport chopper 
dragging the Freon tanks behind him, and he rams the Freon tanks into Destoroya, freezing a good um, third or so of his body. And Anguirus sees this and takes a charge at him and then bounces into a big rolling ball attack, crashing into uh, Destoroya and laying him low. And uh, Destoroya retreats, and Anguirus is victorious. Later, on an aircraft carrier, the uh, Anders and Tagger are talking, and uh, you know we, we find out that apparently uh, Tagger and Anders have been sleeping together, which is a detail I could have lived without. And Anguirus is swinging back out into the sea when suddenly out of the harbor comes Godzilla. And the two old foes face each other down, and then Godzilla turns and attacks the aircraft carrier because he's going after the bigger threat. Um, and I like this issue. I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for Anguirus, so I may just be more prone. Um, I, I, I enjoy the issue. A few notes here. Page 3, panel 1. Um, I love the special effects coloring in this comic. The color, uh, Josh Perez did an amazing job with the coloring. The in this in this panel, we see the um, Destoroya is shooting his beam at the military, and then we get um, a Mazer tank and a couple other tanks firing back at him. And all the beam effects just look really bright, and and they they just look really good. They really pop off the page. I very much liked it. Uh, page six and seven. When Anguirus first shows up, his roar is uh, portrayed in the sound effects as GAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAA
no pun intended. And uh, the sound effects, the Badoom, actually has a snow and frost built up on it, which I thought was a ni- nice touch, kind of an old school uh, type thing, even though it's clearly um, you know modern sound effects where it's just cut and paste. But I really liked that. I thought that um, that was a nice touch and really gave to the uh, added to the idea that they're crashing these giant tanks of Freon trying to freeze Destroya. Especially again, if you know that Destroya and ice don't really mix. And then the following page, um, Angurus's roll attack is epic. You know, it's just uh, the the third panel takes up a good two thirds of the page and it's just crash as he slams right into Destroyer's chest, and Destroyer is flung back. I think pretty much since Destroy All Monsters Melee, and then in um, Godzilla Final Wars made it official, Angurus's roll attack is now his signature, which is amazing, considering the character had been around for, what, 40 years, almost, before he had it, and now everybody uh, just, uh, you know, identifies Angurus rolling up like a soccer ball and rolling into people. I really liked, I knew at some point he was going to do it, in a comic, you can't not do it because it's so, you know, it's not like in, in a live-action film where you've got to, you know, make an effect for it. Here, you just draw it. So, And then finally, page 21, Godzilla makes his cameo, looking uh, very much like his Millennium self with the big, jagged uh, dorsal fins, as he has been represented in most of the IDW series. I do like that Godzilla makes a cameo, even though this is really a spotlight series on other monsters. Always good to have Godzilla in a comic with Godzilla's name on the front. Um, in closing, I, I like this issue. Again, I think I may be more prone just because I like Angurus. Um, it's you know it's a fun little it's a fun little diversion. It's not you know it's not Monster Zero or anything, but these are these are just single one shot comics focusing on uh, monsters as you know a, a, a secondary monster. So I liked it. I thought it was good. Uh, I like the Art Adams cover. The Bob Eggleton cover actually look, looks really neat too. It's uh, Eggleton is has kind of a photorealistic style almost. So Angurus looks a lot like he did in this, in Godzilla Raids again, which is kind of interesting. But of course that's juxtaposed against the Millennium style Godzilla. So and Matt Frank Matt Frank's covers are, are always are always neat. This one looks more like something we might have seen on Godzilla Kingdom of Monsters more so than than on this series. But uh, Frank's work for um, doing gut, um, monster pinups and covers is not to be overstated. And this one looks pretty neat. Godzilla Legends number two on our cover. We have Rodan. Everybody loves Rodan. And Godzilla Legends number two was published in December 2011. Cover date and is entitled Lifespan. The uh, author is Jonathan Vankin, penciler Simon Gain, colorist Rhonda Pattison, uh, letterer Chris Mallory, editor Bobby Curnow, covers by Art Adams, and let's see who did the variants. Chris Scalf did the variant cover for this one. Uh, our story opens in Okinawa in 2007, as uh, a Lance Corporal is uh, returning to a base camp, and he went hiking, and he found, apparently in the hills, a giant egg. And this sends the MPs uh, into a frenzy as they grab the egg and run off and immediately arrest the Lance Corporal, because no sooner does the, is the egg revealed from the car than Rodan comes crashing down into the base. And um, it's a great shot of him. Just, he, he's, he's flying and swooping in, so he's sending all the cars and men flying and he's dragging his feet through a building, and it's just smashing it to pieces. 
um, a doctor grabs the uh, uh, the egg and directs it into his lab as Rodan goes crazy, uh, tearing apart buildings, crushing cars, and just generally causing mayhem as he is apt to do. Um, five years later, 2007, 2011, yeah, five, four years later, yeah, this is why I do a uh, monster podcast and uh, not a math podcast, because that would not really be uh, my specialty. Anyway, the doctor, whose name we find is Dr. Holder, he is still, he is at the Civilian Military Science Facility adjacent to the camp that Rodan had attacked, and he has been researching the egg since 2007. And um, as he goes inside and looks at the egg, outside an air raid siren sounds, and we see Rodan uh, flying very high above the base. And apparently this was the fourth appearance of Rodan in the past two years, and he's too far up for the soldiers to attack, so they hold their fire. Dr. Holder's supervisor, Mr. Nishimura, tells him that the risk is getting too great with Rodan's appearances increasing, and that they have to have the egg destroyed. But Holder argues, saying that they can that, that what they can learn from the egg is ins- is um, beyond anything they can learn from any other project. Nishimura doesn't want to hear it. He says that the egg is a biohazard, and in one week a disposal team will remove it. Meanwhile, uh, Dr. Holder's son Ethan he is having a rough time of it. Uh, he's at school and he's getting beaten up and bullied. Although he does get the last laugh on the bully by stealing uh, his English lit paper and destroying it. Back at home. Um, he tries to talk to his dad about how he feels like an outcast. He says the American kids hate him because they're not military, and the Japanese kids hate him because he's not from Japan, and that he has to get out of here. And he says that once now that they're getting rid of the egg, we can go back home, and Dr. Holder explodes at him, yelling that, I will never leave the egg. Do you understand me? And, um, you know, Ethan is despondent, but then he gets a, a devious look on his face and has an idea. The following night, him and his dad break into the lab and steal the egg, and they're finally bonding a little bit. You'll find that there's a very awkward high-five between the two of them as they um, spirit the egg away in the back of their car. The next day, the egg is sitting on the coffee table in the living room, and as Dr. Holder gets ready for work, Ethan says he wants to stay home and take care of the egg, and um, Dr. Holder won't hear anything of it, says that he must go to... Uh, school and that they will relocate the egg later. Well, Ethan is very mad about this, throwing his bowl of cereal against the wall and smashing it. Next we see Ethan at school and he has a dolly with the egg on it. And uh, the boys uh, move in to give him grief and he says, guess what's going to happen today? You're going to die. And he takes the sheet off the egg and uh, the boys don't, you know, just blow it off, but he looks to the sky uh, expectantly. At the base, uh, Dr. Holder is greeted by the MPs and immediately arrested, and uh, it turns out that they knew about it, and they've been tracking him, and they're watching Ethan. And um, then off in the distance, as he's being dragged into the paddy wagon, we hear the scree of Rodan, and everyone looks up in the sky, and Rodan has appeared. And he just pounces down on the uh, on the base, and even though he's hidden a barrage of weaponry, nothing stops him. And uh, then he swoops down to the school where the egg is and squashes the two bullies, which is very nice. Now, Ethan, meanwhile, is yelling at the military to stop, saying that they're killing Rodan. 
Yeah, but, you know, obviously nobody listens to him, and certainly not Rodan, as Rodan tears apart all the resistance that the army puts up. And then the egg begins to hatch and cracks open, and a tiny little, uh, about about Ethan's size, uh, uh, newborn Rodan comes out of the egg. And so Rodan swoops over and grabs the tiny little baby in his mouth. And then... Much to my surprise, because I wouldn't have pulled this off, Ethan jumps on to Rodan's back and yells, I'm coming with you. And then Rodan takes off to fire, and the uh, the commander of the resistance uh, force says, cease fire, cease fire, the kid is on there. And Rodan flies away with the kid on his back. And then we cut to Holder in a uh, prison cell, and the uh, guard says, congratulations, Holder, your son saved the monster's life this time. Of course, you'll never see the kid again. I hope you're happy. And uh, Holder suddenly starts getting upset that he's lost his son, the one that he's ignored for so many years because he's been obsessed with this egg. And the last panel we see is Rodan flying off into the sunset, presumably with his uh, infant and Ethan still in tow. Uh, This was another good issue. Again, uh, Rodan is, like Anguirus, a very popular monster, so it made sense to do a focus uh, on him in the second issue. Um, one thing that's interesting, on the cover, I have, again, I have the Art Adams cover here, and Rodan is depicted as having two horns, which is his classic Showa look, whereas in the issue itself, as well as on the Chris Scalf alternate cover, he has three horns, which is the Hesai-style Rodan, and uh, the one probably more people recognize at this point, just because there's been a lot of merchandise and uh, imagery of Rodan with three horns since he appeared in uh, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla in 1993. Um, page two and three is a splash page. This is the first time I saw it. I said this is a Rodan fan's dream. I mean, he uh, just swooping in, wings spread wide, sending all the cars flying around. We see men flying backwards. The building is just um, you know a shambles where his feet drag through it. Um, he's got a fierce look on his face, his eyes staring off uh, hideously. I, I really like it. It's a, it's a well-rendered, um, well-rendered uh, splash page here by Gain and Pattison. And what's interesting is that there's no anchor credited here, so it it's, it has kind of a scratchy look to it almost. But I think it adds to the adds to the story and it really makes Rodan look very cool. Um, page 17, panels two and three. The bullies getting killed by Rodan now. Normally, we in comics, we tend to shy away from showing children getting killed. I mean, these guys are, I mean, they've got to be maybe, I don't know, 12 at most. I mean, they're, they're, they're school-age bullies, you know. But IDW has not really had a problem with showing kids being killed by monster attacks. I mean, the first issue of Godzilla Kingdom of Monsters, they had kids getting killed on the beach by Godzilla. They got a lot of, a lot of flack for that. Now, whether they deserve it or not, I mean, that's a subjective question. Uh, here, it's comeuppance for the bullies, and so it's not not unwelcome. I mean, I don't want to see kids getting stumped by monsters, but it's it's handled in a as tasteful a method as I suppose you could have kids getting killed by monsters. So, And again, the kids are kind of scumbags anyway. Now, I recognize that no kid is actually all bad, and that bullying has a lot of uh, factors that lead to it, but... We have the luxury of talking about a 22-page comic book, and we don't have to worry about that stuff. Now, page 18 and 19 is another fantastic two-page splash. 
uh, where the main splash of it is, is Rodan having landed, his wings spread wide, uh, head reared back in a, in a screech, as all of the um, uh, mobile guns and tanks open fire on him. And then we see, uh, there's a couple of inset panels. The first is Rodan swatting away an APC with his wing. Another one, he picks up a tank in his beak and crunches it. And then on the, the other two are two panels of Ethan sitting next to the egg as it begins to hatch. Um, again, the, the carnage on display here is, is just great. Uh, every now and again, you'll get kind of a new school Daikaiju fan. Like, well, Rodan is not so great. It doesn't have any powers. And this pan or this page really illustrates kind of the, the strength of Rodan is that it's not just, you know, whether or not you can fire a cool beam from your, your mouth or your eyes. A monster uh, should have, you know, strength and power to cause carnage no matter what. And Rodan's a perfect example. I mean, he's just an overgrown Pteranodon, but he's capable of leveling a city. You know, that's his power, and that's one of the reasons why uh, Rodan has held up as one of Toho's most popular pantheon. Um, page 20, panel 5. Uh, this is where Rodan bends down and picks up the uh, infant Rodan in his mouth. It's a full-on profile shot of Rodan, but it's so hyper-detailed. It really looks amazing. Uh, it, it's, it's rare that you get to see a monster in this type of um, almost repose, I should say, because he's not, you know, causing carnage. He's just picking up his young. Uh, but it's really a nicely rendered shot. I mean, the, you see little uh, chinks and um, chunks missing on his horns. We see the folds of his skin under his neck and on the back of his neck. You know, a good shot of his eye. We see uh, all of his teeth. I really liked that shot. I thought that was neat. And uh, then the next page, the last panel, uh, Rodan flying off. I mean, it, it really just looks like an elegant shot of Rodan. I really do enjoy it. Uh, overall, I thought this was a, a good issue. Eh, I'd say it was probably a little bit better than the first one. Uh, the stuff with the with the kid being bullied was, was certainly novel. I don't think I'd ever seen a Godzilla story kind of like that before. Of course, having Rodan there, again, much like Anguirus in the first issue, having these classic monsters there really uh, improves the the story for me just because see a spotlight put on some guys that maybe don't get the attention that they deserve. Godzilla Legends number 3 is cover dated January 2012 and features Titanosaurus. Yeah! Uh... The Godzilla Legend number three is titled Secrets. The writer is Mike Raked, penciler Tony Parker. Actually, art by Tony Parker, because he does the inks as well. Uh, colors by Ian Herring. Letterer is Chris Mallory, editor Bobby Kerno. Cover artist Art Adams, with the variant by Bob Eggleton. Our story opens as um, a young man named Tristan hears a voice in his head, and the voice belongs to Mickey Segusa, and she is outside his house and talking to him via telepathy. She says that she has a gift like his, and she can hear what people say before they speak the words, just like him. So she says she's going inside to talk to his parents, and he should get dressed and come down. So he goes downstairs, and he sees Mickey talking with his parents about um, taking Tristan to a special academy where special children like him, and I don't mean special, uh, they're, you know, aware of his uh, mental powers, um, can receive the training that they need, and they say that he's a commodity and they treat them very well. Um, while Tristan comes downstairs, Mickey is talking to him psychically and says that it's, um, you know, he shouldn't be eavesdropping. And 
So Tristan tells her that he can he can hear what people think. Sometimes his dreams are prophetic, and when he gets real upset, he has, he can move objects with his mind. And uh, his dad thinks he's haunted. Um, but Mickey just laughs at that a little bit. And so basically she, she asks Tristan to come join the conversation, and Tristan says that he uh, wants to go, and uh, he thinks he belongs there. So several days later, he arrives at the Institute, which is off kind of in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And Mickey tells him that uh, she promises that if it ever gets to be too much, um, you tell her and she'll take him home. And then Tristan says he's nervous because the only time he's been away from home was to go to football camp. And um, Mickey tells him that there's, including him, seven students all told at the Institute. Inside, they meet the uh, head of the Institute, the uh, headmaster Moogle. And Moogle explains what they'll be doing with all of these psychic uh, kids and that they have a small staff ready to work and what they're going to do um, is try and use the kids psychic powers in the way that Mickey did back in 1989 to help avert Godzilla from hitting the mainland so they want to be able to communicate with one of the creatures and and Moogle says that it might that it may be the difference between life and death for our world and uh, but he says that Yes, if anyone wants to leave to speak up now, and nobody does, this is good. Tomorrow we begin. And so we get a little montage of uh, Tristan's training, and um, you know he's able to uh, see cards uh, that Mickey is holding. He's able to influence people to make them dance. Um, then he goes on day 24. We see him getting put into a trance, and he feels like he's underwater, and you see some um, psychic energy emanating from his eyes, and. Uh, Moogle is amazed because he made contact. That night, uh, Mickey goes to visit Tristan in his room, and he says that he was just visiting home, basically that he uses his mind to uh, reach out and see them at home so that he doesn't miss them as much. Mickey uh, says that he misses them, but uh, Tristan says, yeah, who knew, right? (laughs) Uh, But he knows they're okay, and he thinks that they're doing important stuff, and so that he should stay. So Mickey tells him good night. The next day, uh, he's back, hooked up to the machine again, and put into a trance. Uh, except this time he's not with Mickey, he's with uh, Dr. Moogle. And Moogle um, makes a comment that Tristan can't read or see his mind. That's his gift, that his mind is closed off, but that's where his abilities end. And um, so they, they hook the machine up, and they send the trance, and we see him make a mental connection with a monster underwater. We see We can't see exactly who, but... We see him screaming out, and then Mickey rips the helmet off of him. Um, uh, Mickey says that she could hear him screaming in his mind as she was coming down the hall, and asks Moogle what he thinks he's doing. And Moogle says that he is doing what the UN tasked him to do to find a countermeasure for the monsters. And um, you know, Mickey says that that her connection with Godzilla was formed out of fear, but mostly out of concern, and that if they use anger and as the connective uh, tissue, the connective medium, that they're going to go down a destructive path instead of a helpful path. And Moogle says that he, now that he won't continue his experiments on Tristan because he's not a monster, he's just desperate to save his world. That night, Tristan has a strange dream with uh, swirling images and vague shapes of people, and he wakes up screaming, Mom! And um, he sends all the uh, his personal effects in his room flying. Under the water, the monster he made a connection with roars. And uh, then the psychic energy from his uh, from Tristan's 
uh, mind blasts a hole through the wall and he leaves. And um, Mickey and uh, Moogle come running in. So Mickey says, my God, what caused him to do this? Moogle says, I don't know. But according to the seismic readings in the lab, we may be in the middle of a full-on connected event. As we see, stomping through the city, Titanosaurus. Tristan runs all the way home in his psychic-fueled rage. And um, his parents are gone. And he sees uh, a psychic imprint of them on the ground being dragged away and he says no mom dad why can't I sense you anymore and then there's a giant roar and outside his hell his home is Titanosaurus and uh, so he's, he's he's you know obviously shocked he's like oh man he looks at the destruction he goes oh man did we do all of this and uh, as he's talking to Titanosaurus three figures in black come up behind him and shock him with a uh, a taser and Titanosaurus uh, roars in defiance. Uh, one of the shadowed figures calls for a evac, and uh, then behind Titanosaurus, a, a strange-looking craft appears out of nowhere, and then it shoots a beam at Titanosaurus, and it with the zips him up onto the ship in a beam of white light. And then inside the house, Tristan and the three shadowed men also disappear in white light as the city burns. An hour later, neither Mickey nor Moogle can find any sign of Tristan or Titanosaurus. And Mickey says she can't find them telepathically, that even when he was angry, she was able to touch his mind, because that's how powerful Tristan's mind was, and she's got nothing. Moogle says it's difficult, he does so, but don't worry, we'll get through this together. We then see Tristan waking up in a, a plain room on a table. And uh, Moogle is there as well. Um, Moogle tells him that uh, Titanosaurus caused a tremendous amount of damage and that, that Tristan passed out in his home uh, from the stress. Tristan says he doesn't trust him and he wants Mickey. And so they send in a, sh a woman who is a shapeshifter who makes herself look like Mickey and tells him that she's here and um, that... Tristan says, I can't find my parents. I keep trying to reach them with my mind. And the fake Mickey says that they had to dampen your powers. You and Titanosaurus were out of your control. I need to teach you how to use it. And, uh, and Tristan says, for what? And the fake Mickey says, your parents. I'm sorry, Tristan, but they were taken. Bad people want to use them to make you do horrible things. We can't let that happen. Instead, we're going to help you fight to get them back. Would you like that? And Tristan says, more than anything. And as... Um, Moogle talks about how impressive the dampers on his powers are. We see that we are not on Earth anymore, and that we are, in fact, on a planet in the black hole system. And we see Titanosaurus lashed into a pit of water as two Mechagodzillas are being built on the surface. And we see masses of soldiers and tanks and armor, and that uh, Moogle says, with Titanosaurus, our Mechagodzillas and our armada, Earth will certainly be ours. And as, uh, you know, they, they discuss how they're going to control Titanosaurus and, um, and plan their invasion of Earth, Moogle adds, hopefully Tristan's anger will be enough to save our race and deliver us to a new home on Earth. Bam! I like that twist. That was really good. I like this issue a lot because Titanosaurus 
See, Titanosaurus appeared in Terror of Mechagodzilla, the last film in the Showa era, and so he has not gotten any more play, which is unfortunate, because Titanosaurus is a great monster. You know, he's classic old school. By the time we were at this point in the Showa era, if you weren't a crazy monster like Gigan, you weren't getting a lot of attention. But Titanosaurus fights with tooth and claw, like an old school Showa monster from the Golden Age. And he looks fantastic. The cover by Art Adams, this is probably the most dynamic that Titanosaurus has ever looked. And the Eggleton cover looks like he stepped off the set. You know, like that, that look, it looks like the suit from Terror of Mechagodzilla. But great to see Titanosaurus back. He was he makes a cameo in the opening credits of Final Wars, but it's like I would love to see a full scale modern version of Titanosaurus back again. Page one, we get Mickey Segusa, the first movie character we've seen in an IDW comic so far. Mickey, of course, debuted in 1989's Godzilla vs. Biolante, which we have discussed on this show, so go back and listen to that one. Um, now, unfortunately, by page two, panel two, we see that the resemblance to Mickey is not very good. So I assume that while they are allowed to use the character, they do not have the actor likenesses um, so Mickey looks a little bit different than what I would imagine she looks like. She looks on page five, panel one, as uh, Headmaster Moogle is giving the uh, briefing. We see a screen showing some other monsters, and we get to see uh, Godzilla, Mothra, Destoroyah, King Ghidorah, and Rodan on the screen. And um, interesting, we picked uh, probably <laughs> five of the most popular monsters in the pantheon, um, which is appropriate. Yeah, just uh, nice little uh, cameos, including from some characters we've already seen in the series. Got Destoroyah and Godzilla and uh, Rodan. On page 7, when uh, Mickey is talking to Tristan, and Tristan talks about visiting his parents psychically, he says, I can see them watching TV. Our favorite show was Lock and Key. Well played, IDW. Very cute. Lock and Key, of course, being a uh, very um, popular and successful horror series that IDW publishes. Uh, page 8, panel 4, when uh, Tristan undergoes the experiment with uh, Moogle, we get a really cool shot of, um, in the foreground is Tristan. His eyes have gone white with a blue energy burning out of them. And in the background is the silhouette of the roaring Titanosaurus. <clears throat> I really like this panel. I thought um, the juxtaposition of the, the color in the foreground and the black silhouette in the background was just really neat. Uh, kind of reminded me a little bit in kind of a tangential way of the way that in Terror of Mechagodzilla when Katsura would use her powers to control Titanosaurus or cybernetic powers they would show her eye flash and then the camera would zoom in and we'd cut straight through to Titanosaurus so that was neat uh, page 12 a full page uh, uh, splash single page splash of Titanosaurus making the scene and he looks great uh, it's shot from, um, you know, the Andre the Giant cam, so we're shooting up uh, from his foot uh, towards him, and he just, he looks just vicious and gigantic, and uh, he's grabbed a car in his hand, and he's smashing his other hand through a, uh, a skyscraper, and um, he's roaring at a uh, attack chopper that is shooting at him. Really a great shot. I really like that one. Again, Titanosaurus is a, is a good-looking monster with his, his long neck and the, you know, the, the sails on his, uh, on his head and you know, his sharp teeth and everything. So it's good to see a monster that really, again, doesn't get much attention just because of when he was introduced uh, to get some, some love and affection here from IDW. Uh, page 14, panel 2, we get a, a hyper-detailed profile shot of Titanosaurus. 
just like we got of Rodan in the last issue. In fact, it's even the same orientation where he is looking to the right as you're looking at him, and we see his um, big yellow fish eye. I always liked that he had uh, kind of fishy eyes uh, because he was an undersea creature, and that was a big part of his origin in Terror of Mechagodzilla. Unfortunately, his mouth is closed, so we don't get to see his uh, his teeth at all, which would have been neat in this sequence. Uh, the next panel is also interesting. As uh, Tristan looks out over the city, the carnage that was caused, we see Titanosaurus kind of cocking his head back and looking backwards. Nice little character bit. I liked that one a lot. Uh, page 19, Moogle makes reference to the, the fate of our world and the simians. Now, they don't look like the simians, who you'll recall from Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster, were the race of ape-like uh, aliens that built the Mechagodzilla. But I'm not sure if, you know, they don't look like the simians, but maybe they're trying to, to be a separate race from the black hole, or maybe this is just the way they wanted to draw the simians so they didn't look like the ripoffs from Planet of the Apes that they were. But, uh, of course, you know, we, we then see on the uh, the two-page spread on page 21-22 the black hole instead of a sun, and that, would know the, which is exactly what we hear about, the, uh, you know, the aliens from the third planet of the black hole. Uh, are the simians that are invading Earth. So are these supposed to be the simians? The way the dialogue is written, it's not really clear. So it's either the simians or one of the simians' allies who are uh, running this plan. And finally, that aforementioned two-page spread just looks amazing. I really liked this page. I loved this twist. Um, I wish I could get this as a poster. It doesn't make sense as a poster because, you know, unless you really know what's going on with the story, but uh, mech, um, the two Mechagodzillas are, in, are in being assembled. One of them has uh, no head and no arms. The other one has one arm and its head already attached. Um, Titanosaurus is in a big pit, and we see he's got uh, chains on, um, or I should say, uh, manacles on his uh, wrists that are tied to big heavy cables to the side of it, and he's thrashing about trying to get out. And then we see... Uh, Oh, at least ten or so just giant columns of men and then armor and tanks around them as well. It's like this is an invasion fleet, including the two space or three really space monsters and it's like damn. You know, I I, I won I really wonder if this is gonna this story's gonna play out at any point in the future IDW comics. With their ongoing series now, they really could do a big invasion. I would love to see this play out and uh, you know, see that invasion take place and the the war that, that would be. Uh, I really like this one. I know I've been saying that a lot, but no, I'm prone. I'm, I'm prone to liking comics with giant monsters in them, especially giant monsters I like. So uh, this this was a, a good issue. Again, if you like Titanosaurus, this one's definitely worth getting. Um, was it as strong as the Rodan issue? I would say it was probably a little bit stronger. The the stuff with the kid and and the excuse me the doctor in the Rodan issue is a little wonky in places, whereas this was more straightforward. Uh, so this this was good. I like this one. Godzilla Legends number four was uh, cover dated February 2012 and features Hedra. Again, I have the Art Adams cover. The uh, alternate cover was done by Chris Scalf. And um, he is titled Smog of War. The writer is Chris Mallory. Uh, pen art by E.J. Sue. Uh, colorist was Priscilla Tramontano. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Letter of Chris Mallory. Editor, Bobby Curnow. 
Our story opens in Linfen, China, and uh, as the Mecha Godzilla makes landfall in what looks like um, either a monster attack or an industrial accident, it's not really clear. And uh, as the MG lands, we meet our piloting crew on the uh, on the Mecha Godzilla. There is Nashi, the chief officer, Solani, the navigator, Vine, the weapon specialist, Levy, the science officer and uh, Gregory, the ship's engineer. And as they land, um, they take readings from the outside, and it looks like the airborne toxicity of the environment outside is way off the charts. So they close the ports and begin their investigation. Uh, now, it's suggested that it might there's no radiological presence, and it was a heavy industrial area, so maybe it was an accident. And um, as the Omega Godzilla continues to look around, the readings begin peaking outside, the uh, toxicity readings. And then all of a sudden, a uh, smokestack of some kind in a facility blows up onto the Mechagodzilla, splattering it with sludge. And uh, as they take a damage report behind Godzilla, behind, excuse me, behind Godzilla, behind Mechagodzilla, the big formless pile begins to form up into Hedra, its red and orange eyes glaring as... Uh, as it sneaks up behind the robotic monster. The toxic levels peak again, and then the Mechagodzilla the is covered in a right hand of sludge by Hedra. And uh, they begin firing weapons at it, but all of their beam weapons go right through the, the slimy monster, just firing through it. And uh, it continues to try and engulf the, uh, the Mechagodzilla, uh, they're being smothered, and eventually they, uh, the servos fail, and they crash to the ground, causing a big fire. And uh, Hedra, grr, 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 it's a weird sound, and then morphs into its flying mode and takes off, leaving a trail of sulfuric acid behind it. Uh, <laughs> Nashi is not really happy about this, and so he, um, he's, you know, Vine says that the weapons didn't have any effect, and Nashi says, we don't, might not get it next time, so if we don't catch up to it. So they take off airborne after the, uh, after uh, Hedra, when um, out of the harbor uh, comes a flaming blue beam that hits the flying Hedra and causes it to crash. Uh, Nashi says, I had a feeling he'd show up. I've been waiting for this. And out of the harbor comes Godzilla. And so Nashi orders the attack on Godzilla, and the Mechagodzilla unloads on the King of the Monsters. But while they're battling, the Hedra reforms into its upright self, and it go Godzilla goes right at it. Godzilla punches into Hedra and pulls his hand out in pain as the caustic uh, inner body of Hedra does, you know, burns his hand. He then blasts him with his beam, which doesn't seem to have much effect on Hedra either, as he shuffles back off. Godzilla fires his beam again, this time going straight through Hedra's head and hitting the Mechagodzilla. They turn around and do the exact same thing, firing the Mega Buster through Hedra back at Godzilla. Hedra turns around and uh, shoots his uh, eye beams at the uh, Mechagodzilla angrily, and then backhands uh, Godzilla with a big handful of sludge. Then it shoots a, a little, I don't know, sludge ball, I guess, at the Mechagodzilla and covers its, uh, its, its face causing it to uh, topple over and crash again. The battle rages on, with beams fired at both sides, until uh, Godzilla tail whips the Hedra, and then gets his tail stuck. <laughs> so Hedra begins trying to dissolve his tail. 
Nashi readies the, uh, the heavy weapon, the plasma grenade, and blasts Godzilla and Hedra with it. But it's ineffective against either monster. Godzilla and Hedra tangle again, Godzilla dripping out one of Hedra's eyes and uh, trying to dissolve it, or excuse me, trying to destroy it. But Hedra immediately releases toxic fumes and then tries to smother Godzilla. Um, inside the ship, uh, Levy says that it's killing him. We have to do something. And Nashi says, we have, the same, we have had the same order since day one, destroy Godzilla, but not today. So the Mechagodzilla readies the shock anchors and shocks the Hedra off of, uh, off of Godzilla. It attacks... Uh, the Hedra then begins crawling up the cables and attacking Mechagodzilla. Nashi orders the afterburners fired and they're going to fly out into space. And the idea being that they're going to uh, leave the atmosphere and re-enter it, burning this thing up, leaving Godzilla back behind on Earth. Nashi says that he hopes that Godzilla appreciates what we did for him. But as they're flying, they're running out of uh, fuel. They can't make it into the atmosphere with the heavier weight of the Hedra hanging off of them. So now as they're in the lower atmosphere and he begins to freeze, they fire a shot with a plasma grenade, shattering Hedra into thousands of pieces. Mechagodzilla has enough fuel to limp home, and Godzilla returns to the sea. In a world, as, it's, as Nashi says, in a world potentially full of monsters and other dangers, who needs Godzilla anyway? But as we see, all the little shards of Hedra that they created by destroying him when he was frozen have rained down on the earth. And on the last page, we see Hedra swimming towards an oil refinery, a chemical plant, a uh, fishing ship, and landing on land. So Hedra is not so easily destroyed. Uh, this one was a real change of pace because it was not, it was just an action issue, just non-stop, just a three-way battle between Godzilla, Mechagodzilla, and the Hedra the entire time. I, I, there's something to be said about not worrying so much about a story and just going bam, bam, bam. Uh, page two is a full-page splash of the Hesai-era Mechagodzilla, which admittedly is my least favorite of the, uh, three Mechagodzillas. I like the old, excuse me, I like the old school one, so... I'm kind of a freak in that sense, and that my favorite one is the original and not um, the Kiru or the Hesai one. But it's a good shot of him landing, and um, we see what the after effects of Hedra's attack. We see dead bodies on the ground, uh, radioactive uh, canisters scattered everywhere, a destroyed bicycle, and actually, if you look very carefully, hidden behind a rock is the TARDIS. Um, I don't know if Doctor Who would have much he could do against Hedra. I'll be completely honest. You know, let alone Godzilla. You know, Hedra, you can't exactly reason with or outwit Hedra. So, uh, page four, panel five, we get the explosion of the industrial plant on the Mechagodzilla that splatters it with the sludge. Uh, more great special effects coloring. EJ, um, excuse me, Priscilla Tramontano does a great job with the coloring here. We, the coloring in all these books have been fantastic across the board, and this one's no exception. Really looks great. It's a great shot of, uh, I love the lighting effects on the Mechagodzilla. The inking from Sue looks really good, too. It really, um, uh, the light and shadow effects from the inking look real nice on that, on that page. Um, page 7, panel 1, the Mechagodzilla's counterattack on, uh, on the Hedra after he tries to uh, smother them, firing the, uh, looks like the eye beams and the shoulder port missiles. Again, more great coloring, but also the coloring on the, on Hedra as he's blasted apart like an ooze 
but that immediately reforms. It just, like I said, I can't talk enough about the coloring here. Uh, Sue and Tramontano do a great job on the art on this issue. Everything looks really dynamic. Um, the fight is well choreographed, just back and forth. Uh, I mean, I really, I was very much impressed with the art on this issue. Um, page eight in panel two, um, as Hedra takes off, um, or transforms and takes off, Solani says, hmm, at least Godzilla doesn't fly. And now she says, say again. He goes, nothing, sir. And this is a uh, reference to Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, where for the only time, uh, Godzilla actually does fly by tucking his tail between his legs and shooting his atomic breath like a jet engine. And so he does fly. Um, I thought that was funny. Then in the last panel, uh, Nashi says, seeing what that thing did back there, we have to stop this, quote, smog monster before it can reach another inhabited area. Again, little nod to Godzilla versus the smog monster. Um, for a long time, a lot of people didn't know Hedra's name in the U.S. They just called him the smog monster. Uh, in fact, um, Godzilla Monster Monster is one of, the, one of the first times his name was used um, in a wide context outside of the movie. They call him Hedra in the movie, but most people just knew him as the Smog Monster. Page 13, they break out the Mega Buster, which I thought was pretty neat, because uh, that was one of the main weapons of the Hesai era Mechagodzilla, was the Mega Buster, its main beam that it shoots from its mouth. And uh, Hedra getting shot through by both Godzilla and the Mechagodzilla, just classic. That's just so cool. It was, again, something that would be difficult to pull off in live action, but in a comic book, no problem, and it, the result is great. Similarly, on page 16, uh, Plasma Grenade, this was the, uh, the, the ultimate weapon of the, or the original ultimate weapon, I should say, of the Hesai Mechagodzilla, and capable of knocking Godzilla on his butt every time they used it in the movie. Here, not so much, probably because they're firing at two monsters at the same time, plus they've taken some damage. But good to see little attention to detail and continuity like that. The weapons of the Hesai Mechagodzilla were the Mega Buster, the Plasma Grenade, and the Shock Anchors, and they use all three of them. And the shoulder missiles, too, which don't have a, a fancy name, but they do use them. So that was, that was, that was neat. Finally, the last page with the Hedra slugs falling to Earth. This is an absolutely excellent page layout. The dead center is Hedra's eye staring right at the reader, and it's a burning as an orange which, with yellows uh, littered through it, much like in the film. His, his bright eyes have always been one of Hedra's trademarks. And then the other locales all around it, we see the little slugs swimming towards it. The color palette here it's all gray and brown, except for the bright splash of orange and yellow in the middle. And it just looks so dingy and dirty and nasty. And you know that these slugs are going to survive very well and even thrive in these environments and that Hedra will return. You know, Yoshimitsu Bano, his original plan after he made Godzilla versus Hedra was to make a sequel with another Hedra, this time appearing in the unspoiled uh, savannah in Africa, and it was going to destroy that environment. So um, it's good to see a little bit of that type of old-school stuff here as well. You know, Hedra is a, is a good villain, and, and, you know, yeah, the 70s, we were very, you know, the 70s Godzilla movies got into ecology and environment, but we're still into that today, and there's still a need for awareness of uh, environmentalism. I'm not I'm not talking about, you know, hardcore green stuff here, don't get me wrong, but I think Hedra's a monster that, you know, still has relevance today, and I think that's important, especially for a monster like him, who's so based around one concept. And um, great action issue. Probably the best all-out action issue IDW has published. 
um, you know, in, in under any under any heading for Godzilla. Uh, the Chris Scalf alternate cover is pretty neat because it actually shows the three-way showdown between the monsters. Uh, it does kind of spoil it that me <laughs> that it'd be Mechagodzilla, but then again, Mechagodzilla shows up literally on the first page. So is that much of a spoiler in the grand scheme of things? I got the Art Adams cover. Um, you know, I like Art Adams. I'm I'm not gonna deny that. So Godzilla Legends number five was cover dated March 2012 and features Kumonga. Um, who you may also know as Spigus, but at this point, Toho would like you to call him Kumunga. Her issue was entitled From a Great Height. The writer was Bobby Kernow. Art was done by Dean Haspiel, a.k.a. Dino. Colorist, Rhonda Pattinson. Pattinson, excuse me, no one in there. Letterer, Chris Mallory. Editor, Bobby Kernow, with covers by Art Adams and uh, Bob Eggleton. Um, our story opens with... Uh, adventurer Bryson Allworth being interviewed by a television uh, personality, and she talks about how he has led a crazy interesting life, including base jumping Angel Falls at age 14, um, canoeing up the Nile twice, uh, then eventually retiring at age 35. And now he's, uh, he's an old man, and he's giving his interview about uh, the most dangerous mission he ever had when he came out of retirement to climb Godzilla. He starts at the beginning getting a visit from the government, and at that time they didn't have much information about Godzilla. Uh, he says for all they might have known, he might as well have been a giant ill-tempered leprechaun. So the plan is for Allworth to climb up Godzilla and take readings and send them back so they can learn some intelligence about Godzilla. He knows that it's dangerous, and uh, his family eventually comes around to it. So he outfits, he's outfitted in an anti-radiation suit, and... Um, he said that he felt the need to get back out there and stretch his bones a little bit. So he makes the leap uh, onto Godzilla's tail and begins his climb up the King of Monsters. It's slow going because, uh, you know, Godzilla's not exactly like a mountain. And uh, so he's, you know, slowly working his way up his tail, taking uh, cell samples as he goes. At one point he pulls a cell sample off and goes, look at that, kind of spongy. And Godzilla uh, roars a little bit back at him. And uh, Albert says, easy, a big glute, nothing to see here. A few hours later, as he continues uh, working his way up, he sees things that make absolutely no sense. He sees a small family of googly-eyed birds making a nest on Godzilla's back, and a uh, male googly-eyed bird catching a mutated frog to feed to his uh, nesting uh, mate. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just bizarre kind of stuff. He continues climbing up, and uh, then the rain starts, and uh, he says that his radiation suit wasn't exactly designed to climb in the rain. What a bit of good thing to know beforehand. So he's holding on for dear life as Godzilla stomps into a Mongolian village and just smashes it to pieces just because it's, you know, it's in his way and that's where he's going. And uh, Allworth is just um, shaken by the seeing Godzilla destroy a, uh, a village from that perspective. And in fact, a, a villager takes a pot shot at Godzilla with a hunting rifle and actually hits Allworth uh, in the shoulder, tearing his suit. And um, he says that he's a tough guy to rattle, but that day, that moment, seeing the destruction of Godzilla's lake, that rattled me pretty good. Godzilla keeps on going, and uh, he's close to the top. He's actually on the top of Godzilla's um, dorsal fins now, by his shoulder. And he just keeps going, when suddenly... Uh, another monster hits the scene, and it's Kumonga, as Godzilla falls into a big pit that Kumonga has dug in the sand. 
basically creating a trap, a quicksand trap for Godzilla so that he can web him up and kill him at his leisure. Allworth, of course, is caught underneath the webbing next to the fin, and he's stuck in there. And uh, he's pretty much convinced that he's going to die here, and that this was his way to go out. And he uh, thinks that, you know, uh, had a, you had a good life. Don't drink the water in Kyrgyzstan the next time. But then Godzilla lets loose with a nuclear pulse attack, destroying all of Kumanga's webbing, and then immediately leading the charge against the giant spider. Uh, the two tangle back and forth as, as uh, Allworth tries desperately to hold on. Godzilla takes a uh, bite into one of uh, Kumanga's legs and tears it off, and then beats him with it. And uh, Kumanga runs away um, with his seven legs skittering. Godzilla tail whips the spider and sends him bouncing, and then he finally collapses. Allworth continues his climb, gets up to the top of Godzilla, and uh, gets on top of his head. And so he calls for his evac, and the chopper comes and picks him up, and they narrowly avoid getting destroyed by Godzilla's beam, and the King of Monsters roars ineffectively as Allworth makes his escape. Well, it turns out that Allworth's, the tear in his suit from getting shot was enough, and he's got cancer from the radiation, and so he's going to die. And that he says he has as much reason to hate Godzilla as anyone, because he's going to die directly because of his climb on him. But that um, he says he says to the interviewer that hating Godzilla doesn't do us any good. We have to understand him, understand how he sees the world. We have to find another way to end this cycle of violence. Because if we don't, and then immediately he's interrupted. The news uh, personality says, I'm sorry, I have to cut this short. Godzilla's attacking Melbourne. And they all run off. All the news producers all run off. And all with just sighs and says, we're doomed. This was an interesting issue. When this was originally solicited, I thought... Cool. I'd like to find out more about Kumanga because, you know, the insectoid uh, daikaiju really, except for Mothra. Mothra is, of course, the exception, but the, the villainous insectoid daikaiju, you know, uh, Kumanga, Kamakuras, Megalon, they don't really get that much attention, I think, because they're insects. And, you know, insects are just creepy crawly bugs, and we only think of them as on, on that level. So I was looking forward to getting some insight into Kumanga. Instead, Kumanga basically makes a cameo in his own book, which I thought was really weird. Um, the story is all right, but it seems like it needed to be someplace else, almost like this was a backup for an annual or something, certainly not a spotlight on Kumanga. So that was a little odd. Um, some notes, page two. Godzilla shows up. He is the first time he has been the first monster that we've seen in this series, save for being on the screen in with the other monsters in issue number three. So I thought that was interesting. Um, page five, Allworth describes Godzilla as a giant radioactive pineapple that moves at 200 miles per hour. Um, I can honestly say I've never heard Godzilla described in that manner before, so that was pretty neat. That made me laugh. Um, let's see, page six, panel four, when Godzilla roars at Allworth for taking the skin sample, we get a great little character shot of uh, Godzilla's face, of him kind of looking over his right shoulder, looking back and roaring. Um, that was a neat, neat shot, I thought. Um, pages 9 and 10, with Godzilla destroying the village, kind of an interesting perspective, because we see it from Allworth's perspective. So we see it kind of up high, and we hear his reaction to basically being Godzilla's POV for how he destroys this, the village. That was an interesting take. I don't know that I'd seen that before, certainly not in a comic. It's so rare for, you know, Godzilla to have someone this small interacting with him. Made me think of um, 
Godzilla X Megajurus, where, um, oh, I'm going to draw a blank on her name, but, uh, you know, our, our main character, the heroine, climbs Godzilla at that one point in the sea. She doesn't quite go as far as Allworth does here, but... Uh, page 12, Kumunga finally shows up halfway through the uh, the feature, the, you know, spotlight book on him. Kumunga looks pretty good. I mean, he's a big spider. There's not much you can really do with him to make him look, uh, you know, too different. He looks kind of like his Final War self with his coloring here, which was uh, not, you know, not surprising. Um, page 14, to escape the webbing, if you'll remember, uh, Kumunga's webbing can only be destroyed by intense heat. Uh, Godzilla uses the nuclear pulse attack. And, um, you know, Allworth is trapped on his back. He says, it was amazing, beautiful, transcendent. I nearly bleeped myself. <laughs> uh, I, I probably did the same thing in his boat, so I can't really, uh, can't really say anything about that. Uh, page 17, Godzilla rips off Kumanga's leg and begins wump, wump uh, uh, him on the head. In fact, that's the sound effect, is wump, wump. And, um... Allworth makes the comment, beating someone with their own arm, that's just plain wrong. Um, this was my least favorite issue of the series. Like I said, it, it's not a bad story idea, but it wasn't what I was expecting. I really wanted to see a spotlight on Kumungo. You know, we got a spotlight on Angurus, a spotlight on Rodan, a spotlight on Titanosaurus, and even, to a degree, a spotlight on Hedra. I mean, yeah, Mechagodzilla and Godzilla are both there, but Hedra's really the star of that story. Here, Godzilla's the star, and Kumunga plays a guest spot, and I thought that was not what I would have done with it. I would have liked to have seen a story with Kumunga as a star and Godzilla make the guest spot, so still a good, good series, excuse me, still a good issue in the series. This one was a little weaker than some of the others. I would recommend picking this up, this whole series. IDW is going to collect it. They collect everything. They've collected all their Godzilla stuff so far, so I see no reason why they wouldn't collect Godzilla Legends. Uh, if you're a Godzilla fan, if you're listening to this show, I think you'd probably enjoy it. It's worth reading. See um, the light shown on some secondary monsters besides Godzilla for a change. Art throughout is very good. Uh, the covers are very good. Um, really can't say enough about the different art teams who all did a really good job. Every one of these books looks different, but every one of them looks really good at the same time. So uh, just... You know, you owe it to yourself, I think, to, to check these out. If you're not interested in all the monsters, you know, pick up one or two. They're not connected in any way. So if you are, say, just a really big fan of Rodan, you can pick up number two and read it and enjoy it, and you don't got to worry about getting the other four issues. So uh, that's my recommendation. IDW, again, another good series. After, after the disappointment that was Kingdom of Monsters, it's good to see we've got two hits in a row on our hands with... Um, uh, Gangsters and Goliaths and now Legends. This really makes me look forward to the upcoming uh, ongoing series, which starts, I want to say, it is uh, May, May 18th, as I'm recording this. I want to say it starts next month. I want to say it comes out in June. And, well, I don't have the creative team in front of me here. Let's see if I can look it up real quick. It's the... Um, Oh, I can't think of the gentleman's name. It's, I think it's from the crew, or at least the writer who did Gangsters and Goliaths. And that gives me uh, a lot of hope for the new series, because, um, you know, I thought that that book was just fantastic. And so, and I remember, I think I said at the time on the episode on Gangsters and Goliaths that I would love to see uh, that team handle the book ongoing. 
So let me pull up IDW's website real quick here, and uh, and and get the creative team and the and the date for you. You know, Kingdom of Monsters was was an interesting attempt. It just it didn't work out, and I think a more how do I say this without sounding like a like a jerk? A more straightforward uh, way of talk of of presenting a Godzilla comic might be better received. Uh, less of the kind of pop culture-y sort of stuff and more about, um, you know, about the monsters, about Godzilla and, and his other daikaiju and showing, treating them with, uh, you know, the kind of respect that they deserve. Whereas Kingdom of Monsters seemed a lot more, interest, a lot more interested in talking about, you know, pop culture than it did about monsters. Now, Godzilla Legends talks about monsters. There's absolutely no doubt this is a book series about these giant monsters. And, you know, that alone, um, you know, makes it makes it worth reading to me. I can't find it. I'm on the website here. I can't find it. Uh, um, go to idwpublishing.com and maybe you can find it because I can't find it right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> This is what happens when you podcast uh, in the raw like this. So um, it's very frustrating here. I don't understand why you would hide Godzilla series comics. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know that this is thrilling podcasting. This episode is, I'd like to say just real quick, this is a special DX episode of uh, Earth Destruction Directive, and by that I mean don't expect every episode to be this long, okay? Because <laughs> it ain't going to happen. Um, okay, I can't find it. I've, I've got a, the Godzilla series page that has absolutely no information on the new series. It's just all stuff on Kingdom of Monsters. So, I'm sorry. I don't have it. You guys go and you find it. So, and, and when it comes out, I'll definitely talk about it. Maybe I'll do a special commentary in the first issue and on another episode. So I am going to take a break because I have been talking for over an hour, and I'm sure you people are, are tired of hearing my voice for a little while. So uh, I'm going to take a quick break. We'll be right back on Earth Destruction Directive. And Guy Gardner is a douche. Uh, especially Guy Gardner, who was being a bit of a douchebag, but uh, he wasn't really listening. That's Guy's like that. thing. Yeah, but that that's his other superpower. <laughs> Speaking of Guy Gardner, page 19, I resent the brain damage comment. He was just a character I found extremely grating. Wow, the internet seems to be filled with people who really can't stand the character of Guy Gardner. I mean, to some extent they have a point. I mean, they'd read the character like I have, his adventures of the cores, his solo comic run, whatever. Maybe they'd have a little more appreciation for him. I mean, there needs to be more guy love on the internet. Um, maybe not that kind of guy love. Regardless, there still has to be a way that a middle-aged man like myself, with a love of comic books, should be able to present a defense for an underrated character. If you build it, they will come. What was that? If you build it, they will come. Okay, strange disembodied voice. That's a great idea, but I really don't see how building a baseball field in a little bit of cornfield will help with matters. I mean, I think there aren't any cornfields near here, especially once they're the owner let me build a baseball field in. Plus, Guy was more of a football player and... No, no, no. <sighs> Look, no speaking metaphor. 
What I meant by Bill was, oh, maybe make a podcast about it? Well, that's an even better idea, and it's a lot easier, given my farming and athletic abilities. I could recount all the appearances in Kai in comics, I could focus on his solo run, I could give detailed plans of his bar, and... Hold on, hold on, hold on, champ, champ. You really want people to actually listen to the podcast, don't you? Well, yeah. So why not start with the 1990s Green Lantern and continue on to the Reaper? That's an even better idea. I could cover the Guy Gardner solo series along the way, and also put up for a defense my second favorite GL, Kyle Rayner. Plus, really, these are the two Earth-based Green Lanterns. For whatever reason, they're really overlooked in the mass media. Plus, I've got a nearly complete runs of both series. Wow! Thanks, strange disembodied voice. No problem. Now, now, now. let's go let's kill go President, President Nixon. Nixon. Um, you do know that Nixon has been dead for well over a decade. Oh, uh, uh, okay. Well, how about some brownies? Mmm, that sounds great. I love some good brownies, especially the one with the chocolate frosting on top. Or have you ever had blondies? Those are even better. I had one of those church. Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, is a weekly internet radio show covering the Green Lantern comics, starting with Green Lantern number 1 in 1990 and ending with Green Lantern number 181 in 2004. During the run, I will be placing special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite and the most underappreciated members of the Green Lantern Corps. Along the way, I'll be covering the Guy Gardner comic run, some Green Lantern annuals, and whatever else takes my interest at the time. Come and listen along with me, Sean Ingold, as I make the case for the Green Lanterns who deserve a better reputation at justoneoftheguys.lipson.com. Okay, we're back on Earth Destruction Directive. This time I'd like to read an email. Our email comes from Jonathan Beasley. Subject is, love the show. Jonathan writes, hello. Just wanted to say, I'm loving the show, and it's cool to hear other people's opinions about my favorite childhood hero, the Big G. I was curious to get your opinion on something. I'm not sure if you've seen it yet, but the intro to the Japanese show, Always Full, as the character's store being destroyed by a fully CG Godzilla. I, for one, love the look and movement of it, but I'm finding it's dividing Big G fans. And uh, he provides a link here to the YouTube video, which I will put up on the, uh, on the show page. Just wanted to hear your opinion. Thanks for your entertainment and all the hard work you do making the show. Signed, Bubba, a.k.a. Yank in the Shire. Well, thank you very much for writing in, Bubba or Jonathan, whatever you want to go by. And um, the intro that he's talking about is actually from the movie Always Sunset on 3rd Street 2. Now, Always, uh, excuse me, Sunset on 3rd Street was a very popular manga. In fact, it still is. I think it's still running. Um, and it is kind of a nostalgia piece for the Showa era of Tokyo. And it's about the, uh, the trials and tribulations of one family running a store, and in the back. Uh, the backdrop to all this is the construction of Tokyo Tower in the Showa era after World War II. Now, like I said, this was a very popular manga. was adapted into a film called Always Sunset on 3rd Street. Um, and the film was also very popular. So when Toa produced a sequel, Always Sunset on 3rd Street 2, the opening of the film is was a very closely guarded secret, and it uh, opens into this, you know, just nightmare scenario of Tokyo being destroyed, including the newly built Tokyo Tower being destroyed. 
and uh, the family running through the streets, and eventually we camera gets them all together, and they look up, and there's Godzilla destroying uh, Tokyo. And um, it, he's fully rendered in, in CG, as, as, he, uh, as Bubba um, refers to. Um, this is, of course, a dream sequence. It's not actually part of the narrative of the story, but this was a big surprise. Toho kept this secret from everyone, and when they, in order to make it a big, big surprise when they released it, it ended up being very uh, well-received. Because, you know, if you're talking about nostalgia for the Showa era, Godzilla's part of that. Godzilla is part of the Showa era culture in Japan. And um, I like the scene myself. As far as um, Godzilla being CG, I don't have a problem with that. Godzilla is a character, you know. Uh, part of the strength of the Toho monsters, as opposed to the other giant monsters that came before them, was their recognizability as characters. Godzilla is Godzilla is Godzilla. You know, Godzilla's been a man in a suit, he's been a puppet, he's been a robot, a cartoon, an illustration, and yes, even CGI. All through that, we recognize him as Godzilla, not just because of you know, how he looks, but how he acts, what his personality is, how he behaves, how he responds to different situations. The same can be said for all of the old guard of the Toho monsters. You know, Rodan's certainly like that, Mothra is certainly like that, King Ghidorah is certainly like that. So, to me, uh, how he's portrayed, uh, as far as medium, doesn't really bother me. To me, I look at Godzilla kind of like the way that uh, one might look at Sherlock Holmes, for instance or Dracula, or Frankenstein's monster. They belong to the world now. They're culturally significant characters. They're constructions of fiction. So how they're performed, whether in the case of someone like Sherlock Holmes, we're talking about which actor is portraying them, versus someone like Godzilla and how they're brought to life on the screen. They're, Godzilla is literally a larger-than-life type of character. You know, it's, it's different interpretations, but at the end, it's, it's all still valid. Uh, and, in fact, we have seen Godzilla in CG form in a Toho Godzilla movie. Admittedly, it's very brief. In Godzilla x Mechagodzilla, the Millennium Era one, we do see the original Godzilla 54 very briefly in full CG. And, um, you know, it's like maybe 15 seconds, but it's still in CG, so... I don't have a problem with this. Uh, the, the supposed remake that Legendary Pictures is making is going to be a full CG Godzilla. One, I'll believe it when I see it. That's my stance on all such things like this. But I don't have a problem with Godzilla being CG. I didn't have a problem with Zilla being CG in the American Godzilla. You know, my problems with that film weren't related to him as a character. He's a fine monster character. The human characters were dumb, and that was a bit irritating, but... You know, it, it's 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 not his fault in that case. So, you know, in closing, like I said, I don't have a problem with Godzilla being CG. I, I am a fan of Godzilla as a character. That he was suitmation may add to the charm, especially with some of the older films, but he's still recognizable as Godzilla, whether he's uh, stomping around a miniature set or rendered in a computer. Thank you very much for writing in, Bob, a very good letter. What do you folks think? Uh, if Godzilla's not a man in a suit, does he cease to be Godzilla? Or is he recognizable as a character beyond that? Does his um, strength of personality give him the ability to transcend media like that? I'd love to hear some more thoughts on this. I actually got this email in time for the last show, but I didn't want to short shrift it because I knew that I would talk for uh, a few minutes about this because 
I really thought this was a good topic and a good email. So thank you very much for writing in. And you folks, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this or any other subject. The email address for the show will be in the show closing. So if you want to hit me up with an email, um, go ahead and send some in and I'll read them on the show. All right, next time on Earth Destruction Directive, we have got a real treat for you. See, next month is June. And June isn't a very special month. And I say that not just because that's when my birthday is, which automatically makes it special, but I also say that because June on the Two True Freaks podcast network is King Kong Month. And you better believe that the Earth Destruction Directive was going to get a little piece of the action during King Kong Month. And uh, I have got a good one for you. We are going to be taking a look at the seminal Kong film King Kong Escapes from 1968 uh, which will no doubt go down as the absolute craziest King Kong film ever made Uh, this one is commercially available when um, the Jackson Kong came out Universal released uh, King Kong vs. Godzilla and King Kong Escapes on DVD so you can watch along and send in your thoughts beforehand or you can listen to my show and then watch the movie either way is fine with me But uh, I'm really jazzed for King Kong Escapes, jazzed for King Kong Month in general. You know, it's going to be fun. It's a fun movie. I remember watching it a couple of years ago when I got the Japanese one, and I was pretty stoked. So I'm excited to rewatch King Kong Escapes. That is it. I want to thank everyone for listening. I think this has been a great show. I apologize for the length. I had originally planned to do one issue of Legends and then talk about something else. But I got so far behind that I said, let me do all of Legends in one show and get it finished, because otherwise I'm just going to keep dragging it out and dragging it out. So, uh, again, thanks everyone for listening. Come back next time for King Kong Month. We're going to be talking about King Kong Escapes. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directed, a Daikaiju podcast, hosted and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, and presented by the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. All characters, stories, images, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a fan work designed to honor the rich history of Japanese giant monster movies and culture. The opinions expressed on Earth Destruction Directive are my own, and I receive no money for this work. You can send feedback to our email address, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. All feedback is welcome, and if you send it an email, I will respond to you on the show. Alternately, you can leave a comment at the home of Earth Destruction Directive on the internet, earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. You can also check out the Two True Freaks Forum at www.forumforgeeks.com. And you can find me on Twitter with the handle LJACONE. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And be sure to head to twotruefreaks.libson.com to check out all the other fine quality Two True Freaks podcasts available. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more Earth Destruction Directors. Oh, 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 oh,
Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.